contrary. Let's take our Bibles. Let's head to Mark chapter 10. If you need the sermon notes, just raise your hand. The ushers will move through the auditorium one more time, and they will give you those notes as we uh, get started to get going through a series that I'm doing on Wednesday nights, if you haven't been with us. But then we, I have opted just to do a couple different Sunday nights and just to do some pacing here. question that came to, comes to mind is this. How important is money? How important is money? Hmm. When all of a sudden you start thinking, how much is enough? Or we start thinking, what will somebody do? What would I do for money? Does money ever affect people's moral decisions? Yes or no? Uh, here. How would you respond to this? One of our folk got this letter just recently, and it's from Canada Trust is the logo up at the top, and it has uh, you know, photocopy letterhead, and none of the print matches. Okay, as you go through. But it says, Dear so-and-so, I'm I'm aware that this letter has come to you as a surprise, as we have not met before or handled any business dealings in the past. Nevertheless, I have contacted you with genuine intentions, and I hope that I can trust you with this inheritance opportunity, which I'll explain below. My name is, and gives his name, I'm an account manager of TD Canada Trust Bank in Ontario, Canada. I retrieved your contact address in my search for the next of kin to a deceased customer of our bank, gives their name, a citizen of your country who lived and died in London from cardiac arrest in the year 2009. Unfortunately, this customer died without any relatives, leaving his bank account with an open beneficiary status. All efforts have been made by our bank to locate his relatives. They have been unsuccessful, so I decided to write to you as I have monitored this account in the bank for the last 10 years now, and no one has come forth with any claim. I would like to present you to our bank as the next of kin to claim the dormant account worth nine million two. You will apply to the bank as an extended relative to the deceased customer while I work from the inside to make sure all needed information and evidences are provided to you to back up your claim. The account has an open beneficiary status, which is why I have contacted you to come forth and claim the funds as the next of kin and beneficiary. Since he is from your country and you both share the same last name, it is easy for you to become his official next of kin. If we do not make claim to the funds now, the funds will be reverted back to the system of unclaimed estate at the expiration of the 10 and your dormancy. I assure you that this transaction will be handled under due inheritance procedures and every necessary legitimate arrangement will be put in place to make you the real beneficiary of the inheritance funds. It also requires all confidentiality at this stage and I believe that you are ready to keep this absolutely discreet until you are able to claim the funds from the bank. Once the funds are released to you, we will share them together. Hmm. Please send your response to my personal email indicating readiness to proceed with this transaction. I would put, yeah, other words. Um, then I will give you more details and we shall have an in-depth discussion regarding the completion of this transaction. $9,200,000. Do you think people would respond to this? Would money, would money, the love, the allurement of $9 million cause somebody to all of a sudden claim something that isn't true? Sure, sure. So Jesus is preaching and he's going through his ministry. And as he is going through his ministry in the last few months, he's on his way to Jerusalem. The setting is that Jesus is winding things down, headed down there. He's going to go to Jerusalem, have his rejection, his death, his crucifixion, and then his resurrection and then eventual ascension. And as he's going these last few weeks, he is spending time with his 12 disciples. Doesn't ignore the populace. Doesn't ignore the multitude. Some who are traveling with him, some who are following along. But he is focusing on talking to the twelve and using the opportunity to give them final instructions because he's preparing them, I'm going to be leaving soon. And so once I leave, you have to be able to handle different details and the ministry is going along. Now as he's been teaching in chapter 10, 9 and 10, we've seen that Jesus has contradicted a lot of the popular teachings. If you remember some of the settings, and some of you weren't here on the Wednesday nights when we did the study for other different uh, variety of reasons, but back up and let me just set the scene a little bit better. In chapter 9, he is talking about who's going to be the greatest. That's one of the contradictions in that society. The idea is whoever's the greatest should be the, should be the leader and everybody else should serve them, but Jesus is going to contradict that in verse 35. If any man desires to be the first, the same shall be last of you. And then in that society, there was a really a download. Uh, uh, an idea that children weren't that valuable. They were, they were 
good for being able to prosper the farm, being able to help out in those details. And so Jesus is going to be talking about something that, that is contrary to the society. He says this in verse 36. He took a child, set him in the midst of them, and it goes on, when he had taken him in the arms, he says, whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receives me. That's totally contrary. Totally contrary to the idea that, that the children are important. Then what he does is he gives them another major contrary contradiction to the society. In chapter 10, he, if you look at the first few verses, what did Moses command you, he asks in verse 3. Well, he's talking, and they say, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement and put her away. And Jesus goes on, and he says in verse 7, contrary to the popular opinion, for this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother and cleave unto his wife. Those two shall be one flesh, so they are no more twain, but one flesh. Wherefore, What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. Totally contrary. Contrary to what the teachers were teaching, where they were giving divorce kind of rampantly, that even if your wife displeased you by burning the toast, you could divorce her. If she displeased you because she changed in her beauty because the years are passing by, you could divorce her. That was very common, popular Jewish thought. And so Jesus is contradicting a lot of different things that are popular thought. In chapter 10, he continues as he's teaching, and when he's approached by this rich young ruler, he's going to contradict another popular thought. The popular thought is money is everything in Jewish society. Back then, maybe even today. But Jesus is going to contradict and he's going to say money is not as important as what we think. Now that's what happens in this overall story. So let's, let's figure out this story. Let's walk through it. But remind ourselves of these thoughts as we go through. The Jewish thinking was different because um, you, you wouldn't think money is everything. And our society may not think that. <laughs> they do. Uh, but in Jewish society, this is what they thought. They looked at the passages from Deuteronomy that I talked about, if you follow me, I'll send early and latter rains. They looked at the Proverbs passages that talk about honor the Lord, the first fruits of your substance, and then he will meet and provide and, and bless you abundantly. And they looked at it and they say, okay, physical blessings go along with God's blessings and favor upon your life. And they started making some conclusions. They concluded that there was righteous men in the Bible, righteous men who were very wealthy. Can you think of any Old Testament characters, Jewish characters that were wealthy, righteous individuals? David, Job. Okay, in the Old Testament I'm talking about, first of all, Abraham. You, you've got a number of them. Solomon, somebody said. You have a number of them. Okay, and so they concluded, okay, God's favor comes with physical blessings. Righteous men were rich. And so they made these, these conclusions that God gave money to only those he was pleased with. Now remember, we're, even like we're talking Job, there's a, there's a mindset that says, okay, trouble only comes to those who displease God. And that even carried on into the New Testament. And so they're thinking not about trouble, but they're thinking the blessings, the physical blessings comes only upon the righteous people. You and I know better. Do, do unrighteous people have wealth? Sure they do. Sure they do. And they even talk about it in the Old Testament. But the individuals were blinding themselves to that, not considering that. And so they made this conclusion. By the time the New Testament preachers and their theology, they came up to this, when I'm talking Jewish, they concluded that if you had money, therefore you were pleasing to God. They made this jump, this leap in logic. So if I have money, that means I'm right with God and I'm pleasing to God. Well, if that's your thought, what's the next logical step? Therefore, what should you go after? You should go after money. Because money indicates that you are having God's favor. You are right with God. Therefore, get money. Get money. Get money. And so Jesus is dealing with a society that puts getting rich equals to being righteous. And so he's going to contradict that. He's going to come against that. He's going to challenge that. And as he's going along, there's a man who comes running up to him. We catch this story in that setting that all of a sudden it says in verse 17, when he was going forth in the way, there came one running. And it says he kneeled down and he asked him, good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now the man is, is running in the sense that he's got something that's motivating him to catch up to Jesus, to make 
picture, he sees Jesus. He kneels before him. Now, in, in the different passages, we get different adjectives for him. He's called a young man in Matthew 19. In Luke, he's called a ruler, an archon, somebody who's socially or in the synagogue. He's a ruler. He's influential because of, despite his youth, maybe it's because of his money. Maybe it's because of his family status. We don't know any more information, but we know he's young. We know that he's a ruler. We know that he is a exceedingly wealthy. Every one of the texts mentions that he is wealthy. And so this young man with this wealth, with his power, with his popularity, he comes running up to Jesus, and so he's going to approach the Lord, I think. Now, maybe I may be wrong, but it seems to me he's very sincere in his quest. And there's several reasons why I'd say that he's sincere. Is You know how oftentimes in the passages it talks about somebody coming to trip up Jesus? to test Jesus. That, re- that shows up in several of the gospel accounts, and especially at this time in Jesus' ministries, that they come to test him, or they come to be able to see if he would make a mistake. Well, this man, there's none of that. There's no indication in any of the different gospels that he is coming with treachery in his mind. He comes running to Jesus, which, by the way, wealthy people don't typically run. You know, outside doing business. And so this guy is running to him. He's kneeling before Jesus. And he seems like he's very sincere in asking Jesus spiritual counsel. Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so it appears that this man is sincere. So he comes to the Lord. He's asking these questions. And he asks that that simple question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now what's interesting is look through the rest of the passage. Look at the other other references to eternal life. You'll see it stated in verse 17. Eternal life. You'll see him state, enter the kingdom of God. You'll see them talk about treasure in heaven. You'll see them talk about the world to come. And it seems in that entire context, Jesus is not separating these ideas and dissecting it, but kind of putting it all together in the comments and in the answers that he gives, that what we're talking about basically is from their concept at that point, getting into what they knew of heaven at that time. Is what do I do to be able to access eternal life? What do I do to access heaven? What do I, and then their understanding would be the kingdom concept, and their understanding laying up treasures. And so he's asking this spiritual question of Jesus, and so the conclusion that you and I have to come to is he has the right concerns. He's asking the right question. He is coming to not asking the right question is great and the right concerns, but he is also going to the right person. Exactly. He's going to the right person with this question. What about my eternal destiny? What about my eternal life? Now, the problem that we have, the man is going with the right question. He's going to the right person. But where's the problem in his question? Okay. There's even a word that shows up. What must I do? Okay, so he's relying on the wrong person. Even in this, and it's going to show up. You're, you're absolutely right. It's going to show up his hard attitude. But he's starting off with the idea of what must I do? Relying upon something he has to do to get this eternal life. Now again, he may not have been with Jesus for weeks and months. He may have only heard some snippets of Jesus' preaching. He may have heard several times when Jesus had previously passed through this area. We don't know any of that background information. But he's coming to Jesus. He seems sincere, asking the question. And with the desire of something I must do, which by the way, is this similar to a lot of people we run into that think, what must I do in order to get to heaven? Is that seem to be a common denominator with a lot of people? That it's something we do. It's something that we must achieve and accomplish. And so as he's coming, there's an interesting phrase that as Jesus in this discussion, and it, to me it just, it just strikes, it says in verse 21, that Jesus beholding him loved him. It's one of the few times that all of a sudden when Jesus is ministering to somebody, he is, there's an observation made by the gospel writers about, and we know that Jesus loved the entire world. We know that Jesus was moved with compassion upon great crowds. But this is one of the very few times that the gospels say when Jesus is dealing with somebody, he was moved with great compassion towards this person. And so Jesus responds to him, loves him at the moment, and Jesus answers him. Okay, and in this answer, don't get confused. Hear the entirety of Jesus' answer before you come to conclusions. Don't just take verse 21. Read the entire account of what Jesus, in his conversation, how he answers this young man. Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing you lack. 
Go your way, sell whatsoever you have, and he get well, let me back up. Let me let me move all the way back to verse 18. Why do you call me good? There is none good but God. He says, uh, but one that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor your father and mother. And so what Jesus does is he, he itemizes. He enumerates the second half, if you would, of the Ten Commandments. Remember, if we were to take the Ten Commandments, we would divide them into two sections. It's not divided numerically, but it would be divided by the concept. The first four are basically summarized with, Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, your mind, your soul. The second six commandments are, Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, and so that's basically what Jesus is doing is he starts with the second half of the commandments and says, hey, you, here's what you need to do. Thinking about eternal life, he says, um, you know, you call me good. There's none good, but here's what you, you know, you know the commandments. Do not, and he lists them. And he's very specific in his listing. The man's response is interesting. The man's response, he says, I've been faithful. I've been faithful in keeping them. You know this story. He says, I've been faithful. He gives the indication, I have kept all of them all the time, all my life. Now, if you hear that from somebody, you may not say it out loud, but what's your first thought? Yeah, yeah, they're, they're wrong. They're wrong. They're absolutely wrong. Because somewhere, someplace, because the Bible says there is none Righteous, no, not one. Okay, and so Jesus is challenging this young man, and he's not telling him, don't get mistaken by saying, oh, he's promoting work salvation. No, he's not. He's trying to expose to the young man his need of repentance. And he's saying, do all these, keep these commandments. And the young man doesn't even see his need. He insists he is, yeah, he's good, he's great. So then Jesus follows it up. And says, okay, okay, we, you know, Master, I've done all these things for my youth. One thing you lack, go thy way, sell whatsoever you have, give to the poor, you shall have treasure in heaven. Come take up your cross and follow me. Again, don't make a theology out of this single verse in this context. Okay? Don't say, oh, oh, okay, therefore, if we all become monks or monkesses, if we get rid of all of our money, then we'll be able to work our way into heaven. That is not what this passage teaches. In fact, this passage does just the opposite of all that. But Jesus is dealing with that man, and so he makes this comment to the man, as we'll come back to in a moment. The man's response, after he hears Jesus say, get rid of all your things, what's the man do? What's the next verse tell you, the man's response? Does the man say, great, I'll do it? Does he respond by, like Zacchaeus and start returning the riches to other people? No, what does your Bible read? Your Bible reads this. It has that idea in verse 22. He was, what was his emotion? He was sad at the saying. And he went away grieving. It is an intense word. It is the idea that he is just agonizing. He is in pain. He is like losing a loved one. That's what he thinks of his riches. And it adds, in my Bible, it adds the phrase, for he had great possessions. And so we have this, this whole story unfolding. And he's obviously unwilling to part with his things. Okay? If he were modern day, he's, there's no way he's giving up his cell phone. There's no way he's giving up his internet. He's not dropping cable. He's not getting rid of you know, the fancy car and the bank accounts. Just no way. No way. And so he's, he's very upset, walks away. And Jesus, then as the man walks away, Jesus turns to his disciples according to this text. Jesus looked around about and said to his disciples, he's going to take the moment to teach his 12. And this is an important lesson they need to learn because he's going to be leaving here in the next few months. He says, how hard it is, or hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God. And the disciples, when they heard that, what was their response? They're astonished. They're astonished. Now, Jesus is very clear that he says it is hard for the wealthy, and I'm paraphrasing some of this, it's hard for the wealthy to enter into the kingdom of God. And their response is, you know, is amazing. And Jesus is basically saying that for rich people, it is hard for them to be able to trust God for salvation. Why is that true? Why is it that people... And again, we got a successful, wealthy, 
powerful young man, why would it be hard for him to trust in God for salvation? Okay, because people often trust in what they did. What else? Other reasons. Why is it hard for rich people to get saved? They don't see the need. Any other reasons? What you're saying is absolutely right. Is it, is it true that wealthy people are often self-motivated people? They're achievers. They're doers. They depend upon themselves. They're independent in their thinking. And they're successful. Yeah, and to say, well, I'm not successful, and it's just part of the innate nature to be able to do on our own. And by the way, what is, what is that overriding, that, that basic sin that we're all tempted that we become what in our heart about ourselves instead of trusting? We become very self-reliant. We become proud. We're kind of like, who was that first one that exercised pride back at the beginning of creation? Okay. We're even going a little bit before that. He was the greatest cherub in all of heaven and lifted up with pride. Okay, so the granddaddy of sins is pride. And so here's this man. He's proud and he's not willing to humble himself in that regard. And Jesus goes on to make a comment, a comment that many of you have heard. It said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so the question has to become, what did Jesus mean? Now, I've heard it, and you've heard it at times. Oh, what this means, and we, we have heard at times. What Jesus was referring to is the needle gate that was at Jerusalem, that it was a small door, a small gate, that a person who was coming with all of their, their caravan goods to sell in the city, they would have to unload them. They'd have to get the camel to kind of stoop down to get through this little hole in the wall to go through. And it's a wonderful, wonderful idea. But the problem is... There is no archaeological evidence that suggests that was really there at the time of Jesus being in Jerusalem. And, and when you think about the practicality of this, you know, what camel driver who's got a caravan would unload all of his goods to go through that gate when he can go a little bit further and go through a big gate? So it makes for a good story. It makes for an interesting concept. But whether it is factual is very questionable. So let's just take it for face value. Okay? Jesus isn't talking about a camel going through a very narrow gate. Jesus is using a hyperbole that was a popular hyperbole of that day. In, in Persian literature, for instance, they used the same idea that it when talking about something that was near impossible or impossible. They didn't use a camel. They used an elephant. You know, for getting an elephant through the eye of the needle is like you, you know, winning, you know, like you responding to this guy and getting $9,200,000. It's an impossibility type thing. And so Jesus in his comments, he is just making it, making a uh, euphemism, a hyperbole, an illustration of talking about something that is well nigh to impossible. It is very, very hard for rich people to have childlike faith. What I'm talking about is just what Jesus preached just hours before this account. If you back up, Jesus had made the comment about that idea of being childlike. Go to chapter 10, verse 14, just before this. When the children were nearby and the parents didn't want the children to come by, and Jesus said to the disciples, Hey, stop keeping the kids away. Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for as such is the kingdom of God. Then he goes on, he says, Children are illustrations to us. In verse 15, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. They have to completely trust in somebody else. They have to completely not show their achievement. They have to be believing what the authority, the parent, whatever. Total trust. Total dependence. And so Jesus is saying that it's hard for rich, rich people, wealthy people, to have childlike faith. In fact, we probably could say this. You know, in the Jewish culture, this is probably more clear in the Jewish culture, they, they said riches will get us into heaven. Because if we have riches, we're right with God. If we have riches, we're righteous. And Jesus is saying riches or rich people, they don't save anyone. They don't get anyone. By the way, would this surprise people in our day and age? If you said to somebody, you can give all your money to the church and it won't get you to heaven. Would that surprise some people? Oh, absolutely. Because there are some churches that are built around getting rid of your sins by giving money. 
right? And so Jesus is preaching a truth that is really, really a profound truth, not only for that day, but for our day as well in some of those circles where it's the idea of it's dependent upon you and your wealth and your giving will help you to get into heaven or get you into, get your sins forgiven. And so Jesus is making the comment and the disciples, they're astonished. They're amazed. Whoa. We, were, we weren't expecting this comment. You've just told us that we're supposed to really value children. That caught us off guard. You, you just told us that to be the first were to be the last. That caught us off guard. You just told us that you know, divorce isn't supposed to be running rampant in society. That caught us off guard. And now you really caught us off guard because we're Jews. And this is our thinking. This is what we've heard for years. That wealth means you're righteous. And so in this setting, these individuals are getting their, their sandals knocked off. I was going to say socks. That wouldn't be applicable to them. Their sandals were being knocked off. And so they're, they're caught totally off guard. And so they said, and they respond this way. Now look at look how the next thing. They, they respond to this saying, well, then who can be saved? If, if the rich person can't get saved, then you know, who can? And Jesus goes on and makes the comment, and this is the important crux of the entire thing. The crux isn't get rid of your money, be perfect in your lifestyle. This is the crux of the story. This is, the, this is where he was driving at. With men, it is impossible to do what? To get saved, to inherit eternal life, to get into the kingdom. To lay up treasures for themselves, to be able to be in heaven forever. But with God, or for with God, all things are possible. Okay, so he's basically telling them that biblical truth, which is profound truth for the Jews of that society, and for us in our American society, that salvation is not dependent upon us, it's dependent upon him. Okay, so taking the story for what we have so far, what can we learn? What can we just make some conclusions? These are important conclusions. What about me getting into heaven is the most important question anybody can ask. It's the most important question. This man, he's wealthy, he's concerned. This man has riches, he's got power, but they didn't satisfy. He needed, he needed and wanted and desired to know how can I be sure I'm going to have this is the most important absolutely the most important aspect of what about my life not about how big is my bank account but what about my life in relationship to God not about what rewards can I have in this life but what rewards do I get in the next life not about you know how, how do people look at me now how does God look at me it is so, so interesting how we get caught up, just like the disciples, just like we can get caught up with things right now. We, we, it's so important to us. Uh, we spent a, a, a part of the day yesterday. We wanted to go with family. It's Preston's birthday, so we wanted to go and do something special. And so we went to the zoo, and there was a special you know, exhibit that he was all excited to see, a certain type of animal that he wanted to see. And, and we had done, a couple of years back, we had gone to the aquarium down Baltimore because there was a special exhibit he wanted to see that he had been reading about, and even this animal that, that they were supposed to have an exhibit at the zoo, he had gotten a library book out, because this was, and so for his birthday weekend, this was the one thing he wanted to see. We get to, two years ago, go to the aquarium, and that one display has a sign on it, closed for cleaning. So we get to the zoo yesterday, and the one, and we're trying to slow the kid down as we're going through, you know, because he wants to see that one display. We get to the one display, there's no sign, there's no nothing, but there is also no animal. And so finally we found a zoo person, and they said, well, this is the one day that we have that animal out back because we're changing its cages and we are going to get that animal out once the bobcat leaves and goes across the bridge above to the other side then we'll close it off and then those animals will be in this and his when he heard that this animal that he's been reading about isn't at the zoo and he said I even dreamed about it the night before okay you imagine little kids 
just, it was just like Niagara Falls falling all over right there in the zoo. Because his heart was broken, you know, and it's like, okay, yeah. We say, so what? If you want to smell animals, there's a whole lot more we've been smelling. If you want to see, you know, look at this animal, look at that animal. And it's like, it's not such a big deal to us. But it's amazing how sometimes in minds, like little minds, something gets there and it just becomes almost, almost an obsession. Does money ever become an obsession to big people? Yes, no. That big people are so concerned about money, about popularity, about possessions and position, and how will the other teens look at me, and what about my status, and what about this, that we forget the most important thing in life is what about you and God? You making sure you're on your way to heaven. You making sure you're right with God. This, what about me getting into heaven? This guy asked the right question, the most important question. Let's make another observation. Getting into heaven requires a person understands and accepts several basic Bible truths. As you look through the story, this man had to understand basic Bible truths. A couple of them he got, a couple of them he didn't. But if you are born again, you get them all. Let's, let's write that. Only God is good. Only God is good. Why call me good? Only God is good. Now, we understand that the word is more than just being kind. The word in this context is holy, righteous, pure, undefiled, sinless. And we also know when Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Jesus is claiming deity. And to be born again, don't we have to accept Jesus Christ is God? Okay? There's another basic Bible truth. Jesus alone has the answers for eternal life. This man, he seems to have that concept. Jesus has got it. He's, he could hire teachers. He's got them. He has heard all kinds of, of theology already. He's a leader somewhere, probably in the synagogue, as we said. And so this man has that, but he came to Jesus. So he had a right, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus because Jesus is good. Jesus is God. Jesus is pure and holy, and he would have the answers. What he didn't get is this. You and I are not good. You and I are not sinlessly pure. Jesus tried to point this out to him. Jesus tries to bring him to a point of conviction of sin. Tries to bring him to a point of repentance of that which he is considering most important in his life. And Jesus did it by using the law. I found this very interesting in thinking through and meditating it through. Jesus, when he said, go and keep these commands... Jesus was using the law not to say, and those rules, not to say you can get to heaven by being perfect, but to try to point out this man's, his error, his sin, his lapse, his lack of purity. And so Jesus, trying to expose, uses the law. By the way, this is exactly what the law was written for. If you remember when Galatians is talking about it, it says, wherefore then serves the law? Why did God give us the law? It is added because of our transgressions. Or he said a little bit later, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster. It was our instructor to bring us unto Christ. By looking at the law, we understand we aren't perfect. Honor your parents. Obey your parents. How often are you supposed to keep that law? All the time. How many of us have? We never did. I mean, we did at times, but we never kept it perfectly. Okay? Don't covet something that somebody else has. We all violated that. When it talks about you know, having integrity and honesty, when it talks about pure thinking, you know, we struggle with all of that. And Jesus is trying to point out to that man, and when the man says, oh no, I've never done it, Jesus hits where his most clear besetting sin is. Where Jesus said, thou shalt, or God said, you shall have no other gods before me. What was this man's God? What was this man's idol? His possessions. His money. His money. And so Jesus pointed it out. And so what we learn, okay, is another truth in this passage. We cannot save ourselves. That is clear in this text that only God can save. God can do the impossible, the impossible of forgiving our sins, making sure we get into heaven. 
That's an important truth. That is an important concept that comes out of this story. Let's do another one. Getting into heaven is impossible without God. Okay? It, you say, I know that. Great. Good. But there may be somebody here that isn't sure. There may be somebody here that says, I'm getting into heaven because I was baptized. I'm getting into heaven because I went to church. I'm getting into heaven because my parents. You're not relying upon the right person. The person and only person that can get you forgiveness of sin and get you into heaven is God Almighty through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father but by Him. So that's a profound truth in this passage. This passage is teaching salvation is easier than we think. Correct? People often think, well, I have to do all these things. I have to live a certain perfect way. I can't drink certain beverages or I can't wear certain clothing and I, or I have to wear certain clothing or whatever it is. And they put up all these rules and regulations. Salvation is by faith. It is easier than what we think. But the flip side of of it is, it is also harder than what we think. Because faith in trusting in somebody else, it's hard for us. Any of you ever do rappelling? We, we've done this with the teens several times out in Arizona. And me, with my lack of athletic skill, you know, have tried to be macho at times and do it. Where you basically, you tie the rope and you sit inside the harness and you use the ropes and you don't go down the hill like this. You go, I can't, you sit, okay? And you trust the rope, and you just, with your legs, you keep yourself like that gentleman. And you might sit here and say, oh, that's easy. Until you're at the top, and you have to trust the rope totally, and totally rely upon it, that exercise of faith is, is difficult at times. It's challenging, because our natural inclination is, I got to do it myself. There's something I got to do much more. No, just trust. Just trust. There is another profound truth. Going to heaven demands a willingness to sacrifice all for Jesus. Interesting. When he turns to the disciples and he talks to the disciples and how he makes comment to them as well as building upon what he had said to him. Jesus had said to the man, Okay, in verse 21, I want to remind you, one thing you lack, go sell whatever you have, give to the poor, you shall have treasure in heaven. Let's not stop there. He added some more. He added another phrase. Come, take up the cross, and... Okay, Did, is Jesus talking works salvation? That you do this and give the money away and you follow me, you'll work your way into heaven. No, that's not what he's saying. But what he is saying, okay, we know that there's so many clear passages. Jesus has made it very clear. We know the thief on the cross, that it is faith. But there is this truth. Jesus consistently said, those who really, really, really are trusting in me for, real, for total forgiveness are also those who out of gratitude for me, they are willing to take up a cross and follow me. Watch how he said this elsewhere. Go back just a couple chapters. In cha chapter 8, it's not a work salvation, but it is an idea of I am willing to put Christ before any... Go to chapter 8, verse 34. When he had called the people unto him and his disciples, he said, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Whosoever will save his life shall... Okay. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake in the Gospels, the same shall... Yeah. He says, for what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in glory of his Father with the holy angels. What's he mean by all that? Does he mean there's something more than faith in the work of Christ to get saved? No. But what he is declaring is that those who do put faith in Christ, they're not ashamed of him. He has, he has defined very clearly this idea of easy believism is false. Oh, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, that's it. But I'm still going to live the way I want. He has made it very clear that's not true. 
if you are really repentant if you are really coming to the point where you are willing to make Jesus and accept him as God and as the Savior your natural response out of gratitude is you will want to please him you will want to serve him you will want to learn of him he is making it very clear. If you are going to be one of those who hears the word of God and becomes fruitful, becomes one who, who bears a, the good soil, if you would, that bears hundredfold or sixtyfold or thirtyfold or whatever it is, you are going to do more than just, oh, I believe in Jesus, and then live any old way you want. And in that society, he had a lot of people following him. As long as everything was going good. As long as the there was no pressure from the leadership. As long as he was giving them food, as long as he was doing miracles, then they believed him. But all of a sudden when he preaches, you need to take up your cross, then what does the crowd do? They scatter. Boy, isn't, isn't that a little bit similar to American churches? There's a whole lot that want to just preach, believe in Jesus and do your own thing. And it's really hard when it gets to, hey, listen, if we're Christians, we need to take up our cross. We need to follow him, which was his theme. And in this text, he mentions two areas in particular that we need to be willing to be sacrificial in if we're real followers of Jesus Christ. The two areas are real clear in this text. Look where he goes with it. He makes the comment as he goes on, as uh, we're back in chapter 10, where he says it is impossible. And in verse 29, Jesus says, Truly, truly, verily I say unto you, there is no man that has left house, brothers, sisters, father, mother, wife, children, lands for my sake are the gospels but he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time houses brethren sisters mothers children lands with persecutions in the world to come eternal life but many that are first shall be what are the two areas Jesus is making clear if you are a real follower of mine if you really you're on your way to heaven and it's real in your heart one of the areas that you're willing to follow Christ and take up a cross and be be sacrificial with is finances he mentioned it here in this text. He isn't saying, okay, give up all your riches and become monastic. But truly saved people, one of the responses, where their treasure is, that's where their heart's there. And one of the ways he talks about it, like Zacchaeus. When Zacchaeus was willing to all of a sudden restore financially what he had taken from others, Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. And so Jesus has made this comment to the rich young ruler. That if you're really, really, really serious about following, you know, about eternal life, then you have to come to a point where you realize that your riches are your idol, and then you pick up your cross and you follow me. You, you're willing to, to do what I want you to do. You're willing to, to sacrifice. This isn't the first time he's mentioned this type of thing. And Jesus is very clear in this text. And so you and I say, okay, what does this teach me about wealth, about riches, that are very important lessons, are, is having wealth wrong? No, no, no. He never says that money is wrong. What is the root of all evil? The love of money, okay? That's what's the danger. Can we just make some observations? Okay, riches can lie to us. They can deceive people, can they not? Riches sometimes, they present themselves as if you get more money, you'll be happy. You will, you'll be satisfied. This man portrays us. He has all kinds of riches and he has a hunger in his spirit that is not satisfied by wealth. That he came to the right person. We, we learn that riches don't buy eternal life. That's a truism. Okay, Riches do not buy eternal life. That is a message a lot of your co-workers need to hear. A lot of my relatives need to hear because they've heard just the opposite. We, we learn from this that riches do not make and keep us happy inside. By having money, then I'm going to be glad and everything will be peachy keen and there'll be no problems. This man went away sad. He went away sad from Jesus, but he still had all of his riches. We learn this. Riches do not give up their hold on people quickly. Is this true? You want, you want to see it displayed? Get together with a family that's had a death in their family. And watch how riches, inheritance, can change attitudes drastically. Some of you have been there, right? 
that it's like, whoa, I never would expect it from that person, that attitude, because riches often take people away from Christ. They can, they can just dominate. They can, they can become addictive. And Jesus made it clear you can't serve two masters. It's God or mammon. Doesn't mean riches are wrong. Doesn't mean we can't enjoy them. Doesn't mean we can't have them. But they aren't supposed to have us. And so Jesus is very clear in saying, okay, if you're following me, then you have to be one that says riches isn't everything in this life. Christ is everything. Christ is the master of our life. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, what else are we supposed to be willing to sacrifice for Christ? The next one is family. There's finances, there's family. He makes it clear, brothers, sisters, father, mother, wife, children. He has mentioned this more on one occasion. He has given parables about this, about people who have said they want to follow you after this, that, or the other thing with family. And he just, he's, he's made it clear time and time again. He has said in Mark chapter 3, who is my mother, my brothers, my sisters? Who are they? Those who do the will of God. He has, he has been so clear in all these texts already. And his point is, family is important. Children are important. We've already seen that. Marriage is important. He's already said that. But... They do not supersede the relationship with Jesus Christ. He says the most important relationship that we can have in this life is a relationship with Jesus Christ, where we're honoring Him, where we're serving Him, that He is the priority over everybody, over everything in our life. So we ask ourselves these questions. Okay, does following Christ, does it involve a cost? And the answer is yes. There's an innate cost. There's a natural, natural cost to following Jesus Christ. So we have to ask then, have you ever left something, someone, what in this, in this Christian life that you're living, what does it cost you? What, what are you willing to pay to follow Jesus Christ? Some of you, have been, it's been very costly. Some of you have given up careers because you were challenged. It's either Christ or it's going to be in this career you have to make your job first and your job is everything. And you said, no, wait a minute. I can't do that. I want to serve Christ. I want to be with my family. And this career is not going to be my God. Some of you have responded by saying, no, I'm not going to, for the sake of making dollars, be unethical, immoral, irresponsible. I, I, I'm I'm not going to follow this career, but I'm going to follow serving Christ. Some of you have done that. Some of you have had those costs. The cost when it comes to the idea of even family. Where, you know, what, what do we give up to follow Christ? And we have to remind ourselves, Jesus never ever asked us to do something he didn't do himself. When he says, be willing to give up, remember, Jesus was a rich, young ruler. I say that all tongue-in-cheek. He lived in heaven. He had riches. He had all kinds of authority already, but he gave it up for you, for the gospel's sake. So to say to this rich young ruler, give up stuff, that man could not say to Jesus, you have no idea what you're talking about. Jesus does. Because we read that though he was rich for our sakes, he became poor. Peter, he responds quickly. Peter says, wait a minute, wait a minute. If, if leaving everything is what it counts, look what Peter jumps up. He chimes in, he says, hey, just, just to, for the record, so everybody knows, in verse 28, he says, we've left everything, we followed you, we're not like that guy, we were willing to do it. And Jesus points out, he says, verily, verily, and he makes that statement, those who have given up will get back from me. Now in this time and in the world to come, and we've already read the ideas Jesus promises rewards for those of you who sacrifice. The rewards of giving up little in this life, you, there's a whole lot of getting more in the next life. And they come in kind. They come in kind is what he's talking about. If you give up something with relationships, I'll restore that. If you give up something with possessions, I'll take care of that for you. Now, Jesus isn't saying, okay, we're not, we're not doing the, what Satan said about Job. We serve God to get. We serve God out of gratitude. We sacrifice out of gratitude. We sacrifice for the glory of God. But we understand and we know that God will take care of us when we sacrifice. We know that Jesus even added persecutions. You're going to get persecutions. 
That fits exactly what we heard from Jason this morning. That idea of Jesus talking about that persecution is that idea of receiving now in this life where the disciples responded in those difficulties, in those moments that, where they were out of despair, but, but, they, but they didn't give up because they rejoiced they were counted worthy. They said, I rejoice in my sufferings, Paul did, in my flesh for the sake of the church. They had said, if any man suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, let him glorify God. They understood that that suffering, that giving up, was so that I could be closer to Christ, could identify with him a little bit more. But Jesus is basically saying to you and me, I will meet your needs. If you sacrifice for me, I'm going to meet your provisions. Jesus is basically saying, as I understand it, I'm going to satisfy. I'm going to give you what is really valuable and you'll be satisfied with it. I'm going to give you people relationships. So you leave your family, you go across the, the, the seas, you serve the Lord there in Eastern Europe, wherever, and God provides other people a hundredfold. Doesn't mean your heart doesn't miss family, doesn't mean your heart doesn't, doesn't ache, but it means that Christ, he, he'll, he'll, he'll make it up. It means to me that Jesus gives you and me personal attention. You give up that mother's comfort for Christ, he gives you comfort. You give up your father's approval because you followed the Lord in believer's baptism and your dad is mad, well then Christ steps in and gives you his approval. You, you lose siblings' friendship because you're reading your Bible, you're going to church, and they don't like it, well, then Christ says, I'm going to give you my friendship. It might be with others. It might be with just me really pulling alongside of you. But he rewards them. And then he asks the, 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 those people, or we ask these people, are you willing? What, what would you be willing to give up for Christ? What, would you be satisfied with Christ if all of a sudden your home weren't there? If all of a sudden your family wasn't around, if all of a sudden you had to break off a relationship with a close friend or a boyfriend or a girlfriend, for Christ's sake, would you be satisfied? That's what he's asking. That's what he's talking about. And then Jesus basically concludes and he says, you know, basically this thought that we're going to wrap it up. Gaining heavenly rewards involves putting one's hope in promises of Christ. That's what he's giving to the disciples. You guys have to be willing to just trust me. And they're going to have some real tough times in the days ahead. He'll take care of me. He's going to reward me. He's going to provide for me. He'll do no matter what. This is just, and then he adds, the first are going to be the last. What's he mean by this? Let's remind ourselves. The rich and powerful in this life will end up with nothing. Those who sacrifice and repent for, with Christ, they're going to end up with rewards. Those who follow Christ they're going to end up with rewards in heaven. Those who are persecuted and put down, they're going to be prominent. Those who serve like Christ served, which was not the thing you wanted to do in Bible days, they're going to become rulers in heaven. This is all he's saying. This is where he's getting at. He is saying to you and I, put our hope in Christ, which most of you have done. And if you haven't, tonight's night to do that. As we in gratitude to partake of the elements in these next few moments, what we want to do is we want to be reminding ourselves that you and I have a master that is worth our attention, our time, our service, our praise. Let's shift gears. Let's give him a little bit of praise. Let's reflect on what he provides for us, especially his fellowship. In these next moments, the fellowship we have with Christ because of communion.